welcome to the New Life Fellowship podcast. New Life Fellowship is a community of grace in Kitchener, Ontario, Canada. Our goal is to teach and share and experience the life of Jesus Christ together. You're about to listen to a message from one of our meetings. Please make sure to check out our website, newlifekw.ca. Without further ado, let's listen in. Uh, welcome to those who are joining us online, though. Uh, you guys can turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians 12. That's where we're going to be continuing our study this morning. Uh, but uh, as a way to kind of set it up, I, I want us to think about the, the words that Jesus spoke to his disciples the night of his arrest. They, they call it the Last Supper that, he had, that Jesus spent with his disciples. Uh, and, and it's recorded you know, in all the Gospels, but largely from John 13 onward is the, is the last few days of Jesus. And, and uh, about four chapters, I think it is, uh, four or five chapters dedicated just to that dinner alone. And, and the things that Jesus is sharing there, I think, are, are key and important. It's just his last chance to speak to his disciples. And in, in John chapter 14, you don't have to turn to it. Just listen to what Jesus says. He says, beginning in verse 12, he says, truly, truly. It's a, it's a way of emphasis that Jesus is saying, I'm going to share something with you that's really, really important. It says, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these he will do, because I go to the Father. Listen to this, whatever you ask in my name, that I will do. So the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I'll do. And to, to, to show that he was, that, that was important and significant, he repeats himself just one chapter later in John 15, verse 16. He says, you did not choose me, but I chose you. And I appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain. So that whatever you ask of the Father, in my name, he will give to you. What a promise. Incredible. I mean, ask anything in my name. Miracles, healing, solutions to problems that seem to bigger than the Rocky Mountains in your life right now. Whatever you ask in my name, God says, I will do it. I'll answer. Why are we not all cheering for that? Why don't, why don't, we, why don't we just stop right here Turn the service back over to Ian and the worship team. Come back up and we just worship and we pray and we ask God and just watch the miracles fall. Because we know it's not that simple. We wish it was, but we know that God doesn't just grant every single wish because he's, he's not a genie. He's, he's not serving us at our beck and call that we ask and he just jumps up and does it. He's, he's in fact the king of kings, not us. Right? He's not our servant, we're his bondservant. And so we're told to ask of anything, but according to his will, according to what he's asked us. Now James in chapter 4 warns us that, that sometimes you don't have because you don't ask. And that's true for some. But I don't think that's what we want to look at this morning. Because it's not always the case. See, this morning I want to focus on the times that you have asked. As elders, we, we have the the blessing, really, the privilege of praying for people who ask for it. And they send in their prayer requests, and they let us know what they're going through and the struggles they're, they're dealing with. And so I know that in our fellowship, both here in person and those who have joined us online, that we have people who are dealing with the diagnosis of cancer with a prognosis that's not very good. 
We have people struggling financially that they can't keep up with the ever-growing bills, groceries in particular, and they're starting to, to wonder, well, what bill do I pay off this month? There are people here who've got rebellious, wayward children, children who've rejected God and are indulging in the pleasures of this world like they're on Pleasure Island in Pinocchio. And, on, and sadly, they will pay the same price that those kids paid on, on Pleasure Island. We have people with nagging illnesses or ailments that won't kill them for sure, but it's going to rob them of joy. Whether it's producing things like insomnia, physical pain, heart conditions. We have people praying for relief from anxiety, despair, depression, or some sin in their life that they just can't seem to overcome. It's a stronghold and they feel that they're, they're imprisoned to it, and that they'll never be free. And then we have people who've got dreams. Dreams that seem to be further away today than when they first had them. And they've prayed earnestly, faithfully, believed with all their heart, with all their might that God can do it and will do it. They've even fasted. They've asked others to pray for them. And the only answer that they've received from God, at least so far, is no. I, I will not heal you. I will not take away your struggle. I'll not rescue your loved ones away from their poor choices, and I will not give you that dream that you so desperately crave. And I don't know if you've experienced that yet, but if you haven't, you will. I guarantee you that every, every person at some point will come face to face with a God that lets them down, that doesn't do what they thought he would or, or what they hoped he would do. And the critical part in that is really how do you respond to that? How do you respond when God says no? Because you could become embittered towards him. And that bitterness will, will cause you to put up a, a metaphorical wall of mistrust. And that mistrust will lead you now to not trusting him, but trusting in the flesh, trusting in your own abilities, trying to do it on your own strength. And we can, we can look at many examples in the world to see how that's turned out for people. Or we can look to scriptures and see of people who've been through the same things we're going through and how they've responded to when God has said no. And this morning, we have a great passage of that. It's in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. It's a famous passage that you're familiar with. And I'm praying that God will speak to you, especially if you're one of those people that is struggling with a no from God. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, This world we live in is not the Garden of Eden. It is not paradise. It is not what we were even built for or made for. It is a life that includes struggles and trials, difficulties, and many disappointments. And Father, it's important then that we understand how do we respond to those disappointments, how we respond to when things aren't going the way we expected and we hoped for. And so I pray this morning, Lord Jesus, that your words would be words of life and encouragement. Speak through me as I trust you, as I best know how. In your name we pray, amen. All right, let's begin in verse 1 of chapter 12. It's a, like I said, it's a famous passage that you're probably familiar with. It, in many ways, it's, it's the most famous passage, I think, of this letter. But Paul writes in verse 1, he says, Boasting is necessary, though it is not profitable. But I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. 
You remember that the last couple of weeks we've been talking about this passage and we saw that it's, it's a part of what's called the fool speech, where Paul is acting the fool. He's playing the fool in the sense that he's comparing himself with these other false apostles. Paul says it's foolish because who would ever do that? And yet that's what's important to the Corinthians, so that's what he's doing. And he's showing how he is better qualified than these false apostles. But he's doing it not in a way that you would expect. Because normally if you're going to compare yourself, you would compare your strengths. Look how much more, how better I am, how more successful, how more powerful I am. And what Paul does is he compares his weaknesses. And so we saw that at the end of chapter 11, he shared a story, not of his conversion, which is this magical, incredible story that, that was recorded for us in the book of Acts. And everyone looks and goes, wow, look what God did. No, he shares a story of how he escaped in a cowardly way when they were ready to kill him. Because he'd rather boast about his weakness than boast about his, his own strength because he wants the glory to go to Jesus. And so he's now going to continue that on. He says, it's necessary for you guys, but it's not, it's not helpful. It's not profitable. It's still foolish. But let's talk about visions and revelations from God, what God's given to me. And so he goes on in verse 2. He says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know or out of the body I do not know, God knows such a man was caught up to the third heaven. And I know how such a man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, God knows, was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words, which a man is not permitted to speak. So 14 years ago would have placed him around 41 AD. So it's after the road to Damascus, <clears throat> but before he went to Jerusalem to meet the disciples for the first time. And he talks about this experience where he was caught up. It's, it's that word that's often translated or understood as rapture that's talked about in Thessalonians, where he was caught up. He was snatched away, he says, into the third heaven. Now, the first heaven would be our, our general atmosphere. The second heaven would be outer space where the star and the moon is, uh, is established. But the third heaven is God's throne room. He calls it paradise here in verse 4. And that's significant because that's the same word that Jesus used to the thief on the cross. He says, today, you'll be with me in paradise with my father. So he's caught up. He's snatched away into this third heaven, this paradise. And he says, whether I was in the body, out of the body, I don't know. The significance there is it doesn't matter. Because the real you is not your body. Right? The real you is your, your spirit with a soul. That's the inner you, right? We're three parts, spirit, soul, and body but the body is the least important part of who you are. So whether I had it, whether I didn't, didn't matter. The real me was standing in paradise with Jesus, he says. And while there, he says, I saw things that were inexpressible. I heard things that are inexpressible. But even if I could express them, I wasn't even allowed to. Not permitted to speak. They were so incredible. And I wonder if Paul saw those things because of what he was about to endure. If you remember in Acts 9, when Paul was, was saved and he meets with, before he met with Ananias and God's speaking to Ananias, he says to, God says to Ananias, he will suffer many things. And we, we read through some of those things in 2 Corinthians 11. And I wonder if, if Paul needed that vision, if he needed to see what was in front of him because of what he was about to endure, because of what he was about to experience to encourage him to know that it's worth it and it matters and it's worth the sacrifice that he was about to give. 
He goes on in verse 5. He says, on behalf of such a man, I will boast, but on my own behalf, I will not boast, except in regard to my weaknesses. For I do not wish to boast, I will be foolish. For, sir, if I do wish to boast, I will not, will I, sorry, let me start again. English is my second language. Baby talk is my first. For I do not wish to boast, I will not be foolish, for I will be speaking the truth. But I will refrain from this so that no one will credit me with more than what he sees in me or hears from me. He, would, he could honestly say, this is what happened to me. It's just the facts. And it'd be, it'd be true. But the problem is, he says, my concern is you'll think it's more about me. Again, think about his audience. He's writing to the church in Corinth. In 1 Corinthians, we read about a church that is obsessed with spiritual gifts. They love the, the fantastic. They love the miracles, the signs and wonders, the speaking in tongues and the healings and the prophetic words. They're enamored with the exciting stuff. They love the charismatic things, which is good. We, we ought to experience those things, right? So the, that church in Corinth would be less Baptist, more charismatic is what I'm saying. I can say that because I grew up in that denomination. But they were enamored with it to a fault. And so Paul knows that, that if I share this kind of story about visions and revelations and being caught up into paradise, you would drool over those things. You would love those things, but you would miss the point. Which is why I think Paul's talking in the third person here. We know it's Paul because in verse 7, he's going to now start talking about it in the first person. But he's sharing the vision part, not to boast about the visions, but as the context to boast about his weakness. That's what he's going to go on to talk about. But he has to give you the context, gives you the background. But he's, his concern is you're going to make it all about me, Paul says, when it's all about Jesus. Let that be our focus. Let's focus on that part of it. Because you think about Paul in Romans 15, 18, he says, I don't want to presume to speak about anything. I don't want to boast about anything except what Christ has done through me. It's all about glorifying him. It's all about Pointing people to Jesus. That's what he's after. And so now he's sharing the story, but he goes on now in verse 7. And this is where it gets good. He says, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there has given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. This phrase, this word, exalting myself, it's, it's hyper-eromai in Greek. It's only used, it shows up three times in Scripture, twice in this verse. The third time, it shows up talking about the Antichrist, the man of lawlessness. Talking about how the man of lawlessness, the Antichrist, will exalt himself over God. He'll declare himself God. What I find interesting here is Paul says, I could do the same thing. That, that it's possible with what I've seen, with what I've experienced, that I could let that go to my own head and I could be guilty of what the Antichrist will do, to exalt myself so high, even above God. And I find that interesting that here is the great apostle Paul, and yet he could do anything in the flesh as well. And I think that's, that's, that's a reminder to you and I. There's a... <clears throat> Famous phrase come up with a, an English preacher in the mid-16th century. His name, I think, was John Bradford. And he came up with a phrase where, where he, he showed up one time in the, the town square where a hanging was going on. They were executing a criminal. 
And back in the day, they got, that was a big deal, that people, crowds would come out to cheer it on, which is very dark. And one man recognizing the preacher, he, he says to him, preacher, aren't, aren't you glad that this is happening? Isn't this good to see God's justice? And he had the famous response. He says, there go I, but by the grace of God. And it was a reminder that, that as a believer, there's no sin that I'm not, or that I'm incapable of doing. That I can do any sin still. That nothing's, nothing's changed in that way. I'm still able to do all sins. But I don't because the grace of God, trusting in the grace of God, will prevent me from doing that. And so Paul here is recognizing that it's possible that the flesh could so pump up his tires, could so lead to this arrogance and this pride that he could exalt himself even above God. And so what ends up happening is this thorn in the flesh comes. The word thorn there literally means a, a sharp wooden object, like a sharp stake or, or maybe even a splinter. This sharp piece of wood in his flesh attacking him. Now, many have speculated as to what this thorn could be. They, they, they think maybe it was his poor eyesight because he talks about in the Galatians about how they, they offered their own eyes to Paul. And so they've wondered, well, maybe he struggled with his eyesight. And maybe it was cataracts or, or maybe it was from the beatings and the stonings that, that left him blind in some way. And so maybe that was his problem, his poor eyesight. Others had speculated, well, no, it was the beatings. It was, he probably had back pain and, and he, had, he had these marks and, and that was the issue. Other places in scripture talk about that Paul walked a little bow-legged. And maybe, so that was sort of it. Maybe he, had, maybe he had hip and knee issues. And so they speculated on that. Maybe, maybe it was a chronic illness. You know, all those nights and shipwrecked or, or in, the, in the prison, he just, you know, had this, con this permanent cough maybe. So maybe that's what it was, this, this chronic illness he was struggling with. And then others just speculate maybe it was more mental. Maybe it was a shame and regret that he carried with him about being that persecutor of the church. After all, he doesn't he not say that I was the chief sinner, the number one sinner because I persecuted the church. Or maybe, maybe it was demonic. That, that phrase, he says that that thorn in the flesh was a messenger of Satan. That word messenger is angelos. It means angel. It literally is an angel from Satan. So maybe it was a demon harassing Paul. And there's all these speculations around that. But Paul's vague. And I'm so grateful that he was vague. That he's not specific saying, oh, it was physical, it was mental, it was demonic. He doesn't get into that detail because here's what would happen. Let's say Paul says it was lower back pain. I had a thorn in the flesh. It was my lower back pain. It killed me. It was so, so difficult. But it was a messenger of Satan to keep me humble. If he said it was lower back pain, guess what we would do in the church? Everyone with lower back pain would think they're super spiritual. Oh, you know, I've just seen things, experienced things. So Paul's, you know, God's treating me like Paul. Yeah, got that lower back pain, thorn in the flesh, keep me humble. Praise God, he thinks that much of me. Well, the poor souls with knee pain or hip pain would just be like, oh, I'm so horrible. God just gave me knee pain. He doesn't think I'm that special for lower back pain. And we would start to judge because that's what we do because we're foolish at times. So he keeps it vague because it's not about what the thorn specifically was. It doesn't matter if it was physical. It doesn't matter if it was more mental or emotional. 
doesn't even matter if it's the model. It was a thorn. It was a thorn in the flesh to keep him, keep him humble. And so it isn't about the specifics, it's about what it was doing. And so look what he does in, in verse 8. He says, concerning this, concerning this thorn, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. You know, he's probably thinking to himself, you know, God, this, this thorn, this, this thing is hindering me. It's making me weak, and it's, it's preventing me from being the apostle that I could be. So God, if you just, if you took it away, I could be a much better Christian. I could be a much better apostle. I could do much more in your name. So God, this is a win-win. I'm in less pain. I'm in less suffering. I'm in less discomfort, and you get to be glorified. So God, heal me. Take the thorn away. And he says he implored of the Lord three times. That word implored in Greek is parakleo. It's similar to the word paraklete, which is talking about the Holy Spirit, this comforter. And so really he's imploring for comfort. Nothing wrong with that. In fact, he, he prays three times, and, and, and I think that, that three times is just there for emphasis. Similar to Jesus in the garden, prayed three times. It wasn't just this little prayer that he just fired off one day and then forgot about. Well, this was serious prayer. This was concerted prayer. This was, this was a prayer of substance. And what does God say? Verses 9 and 10. And he, God, says to me, Paul writes, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties. For Christ's sake, when I am weak, then I am strong. That answer is profound and amazing. And I, I wish and I am tempted to just go three hours this morning and unpack it all because it's amazing, it's powerful. But we don't have time for that, because some of you have reservations at Swiss Chalet. I know that, so that's, we'll get you there. But we're going to cover his answer in more detail next time. But essentially, what I want us to focus on this morning is God says no to Paul, because he doesn't heal him. He doesn't remove the thorn. He just says No. that sink in for a moment. Because again, chances are every one of you here has had that moment as well, where you've prayed for, prayed for something, something good, not selfish, right? It's not like you're praying that God would, you know, help you win the lottery or, you know, you, you've prayed for, for good things, for healing, for miraculous wonders. You've prayed for other people. And all you've gotten is back is no. You know, it's not the first time in Scripture where we read about this. There are, there are many examples in Scripture where God says no to people. King David, he, he asked God, he pleaded with God, God, it's not right that I have this beautiful palace and I, I'm, I have this beautiful house and you're in a tent that's hundreds of years old, this tabernacle. We built it in the desert coming out of Egypt and that's what we've all we had for you. That's not right. You deserve something nicer. 
Let me build you a temple. Let me build you a house that is befitting of the king of kings. And God said, no. Or Abraham, having the son of his own loins, Ishmael, born of Hagar, the maidservant. And he pleads with God, God, let Ishmael, my only son, let him be the heir. God said, no. Or King Saul, after he, he disobeyed God and, and, and didn't kill the, the, the entire nation, uh, and he was the Amalekites, he didn't, he, didn't, he didn't wipe them away like God asked them to. He saved the king and he saved their fatted calves and the best of the animals and so forth, disobeying God. And he pleaded with God, God, don't take away my kingdom. God said, no. Or Jonah, going to the, the city of Nineveh, pleading with God that he would strike down this evil nation that was cruel and mean to so many people. And God said no. And we look at all those examples, and, and we can see right away the rationale, though, right? He said no to David because there's too much blood on his hands. He was too much of a warrior. He said no to, Ish, to Abraham and Ishmael because he had another plan. He had Isaac. The, the heir was going to come through Sarah, as he promised. He, he said no to King Saul because of his, his rebellious heart, that he wasn't really remorseful. He was just simply trying to hold on to what he thought was his. And he said no to Jonah because of his grace. So we look at those and we go, ah, oh, well, there's, there's good reasons for that. But you know the biggest no that God ever said was to Jesus. Right? He's in the garden. Night of his rest. Brings his, 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 his friends together, and he says, now, now pray for me. Think about that. John, can you imagine Jesus asking you to pray for him? Three times. Kept falling asleep. They did their best, right? Flesh was willing. Sorry, spirit was willing. Flesh was not. But, uh, but three times he went away and he prayed. What was he praying for? God, let this cup pass. I don't want to go to the cross. I don't want to suffer. And it was much more than physical. As I kind of reflected on this this week, I just, I thought about the level of shame, the level of sin and sorrow that would have flooded his soul in a moment when he took on the sin of the world. Best way I could kind of picture it is if you've watched any kind of uh, war movies and um, maybe like Saving Private Ryan, a great war movie. Especially that opening scene where they come up on, on, on the beach and, and what they show is some of the soldiers just in panic in the boats. They're not getting out. They're not moving. Or if they do, then they just, they find a hole on the beach and they're just cowering there because they're overwhelmed in the moment with all that fear. It's crippling. Well, you take that and you multiply it by millions and billions, and that's what hit Jesus. No wonder he didn't want to go to the cross. He says, God, if there's any other way, let this cup pass. Yet not my will, but your will be done. And the answer was no. I will not let it pass. 
And the reason was because there was no other way. And he still willingly, willingly went, Jesus did. Right? For the joy set before him. What was the joy set before him? You and me. For the joy set before him, despising the shame, hating the experience. He was willing to go. But it meant God saying no to him in the garden. Let's go back to to Paul's situation, this thorn in the flesh. And let me ask you this question. Who's responsible for the thorn? Paul, Paul tells us it's a messenger of Satan, right? That angel of Satan. And so we could rightly say, well, it would be Satan. Let's not take Satan off the hook. He, he, it should be clear that he's responsible. Yet, if you read the passage, it was sent to do God's will. Isn't that what he says? To keep me from exalting myself. To keep me from, from placing myself in, in this proud, arrogant stance. The thorn in the flesh was sent. A messenger say, do you think Satan's going, oh, Paul, you're getting a little too arrogant. I'm going to knock you down a little bit to help you out. That's not what Satan wanted. He wanted to destroy Paul. But God had another plan. So I think God's responsible. Now, you may not be able to accept that reasoning, and that's, that's fine. But let me go a little bit further. The moment God said no to Paul, the moment God chose not to remove the thorn, what was he choosing? He was choosing to let it remain. And I think that alone makes him responsible. Now, that's hard for us sometimes to accept because now we're starting to get into some tricky territory. This is now where we start to play with your concept of God and who you think God is. And he's out to get us. He's out to hurt us. Please understand that God is a God of love who's in control all the time and he's faithful to you. Those three things never change. So what do we do when we see this? We go, well, are we saying that God caused Paul's suffering? Because if that's true, then, then are we saying God's causing my suffering? And I don't like the word cause because what that does is it sort of it takes, takes the evil uh, in the world off the hook. Like, make no mistake, this messenger of Satan was the one causing the evil. He was the one. God can never cause someone to sin. So if you're suffering because of someone else's sin, maybe, maybe your marriage is falling apart because someone committed adultery. Or, or maybe you're struggling because someone's, someone's anger or abuse towards you. God didn't cause that person to sin against you. That's not what we're saying. So then the answer, well, if he didn't cause it, well, then he allowed it. That's the one I hear often from Christians. Well, God, God didn't make it happen, but he just, he just stepped back and let it happen and allowed it. And it's our way of protecting God. It's our way of sort of not, not letting God take any kind of blame for it. And I understand the heart behind that, but it robs God of his sovereignty. Makes him weak. It says there that that there is some things in this world that God couldn't stop. Or even worse, maybe, he didn't care to stop. He just kind of shrugged his shoulders and said, well, sin cursed world, it happens. And on you go. I don't like the word allowed. 
I think there's a better understanding of what God's doing. And I think to understand it, really, we have to understand the story of Joseph. Remember Joseph, favorite son of Jacob, technicolor dream coat, Joseph, right? He, he's the favorite son, and, and he has no problem telling his brothers that he's the favorite son. Hey, guys, gather around. I had a dream. And the dream was, you were all bowing down to me. Isn't that incredible? Hey, guys, look at the coat dad gave me. It's because I'm his favorite. Isn't that amazing, guys? High fives. How are they feeling? A little murderous, a little vengeful. So they planned on killing him, but they couldn't go through with it. So they settled with selling him into slavery and telling dad that he, he, he died. Thinking their problems were solved, annoying Joseph's gone. Joseph goes to Egypt, sold in slavery, and so he's a slave in Potiphar's home, does great things, only to be falsely accused of trying to rape Potiphar's wife, thrown into prison where he's forgotten and abandoned for a number of years, and then eventually rises up to become prime minister of Egypt because he interpreted a dream of Pharaoh that says, right now we're having seven years of plenty, and it's going to follow seven years of famine and drought. So those seven years we need to prepare for the drought. And because they did, not only was Egypt well-fed, but surrounding nations were well-fed as well, including Joseph's brothers. And when they come to realize that it's Joseph, and, and they thought, well, at least dad's alive, and therefore dad's going to be the one to protect us. So Joseph can't kill us. Except when dad dies, when Jacob dies, now they lost their protection. So they make up a story. You know, Joseph, dad died, but right before he died, he says, tell Joseph to not kill you. <laughs> I, I, we didn't expect it either. Joseph saw right through it. And so in chapter 50 and verse 19, he says, am I not where I'm supposed to be? Am I not right where God wanted me to be as prime minister of Egypt? To which the brothers could say, you know, we figured that. We, we kind of looked at you and thought, that's prime minister material right there. I think, I think, you know, we could help him by selling him into slavery. And that would get him to become prime minister of Egypt, and he could save, you know, a big chunk of the world. You're welcome, Joseph. But that's not what he's saying. We're not, he's not taking them off the hook. Verse 20, he says, you meant it for evil. It didn't say you allowed it for evil. Didn't even say you caused it. <clears throat> it says you purposed it. You meant it. You planned it for my demise, for my evil. But God, but God meant it. Same word for good. It doesn't say he allowed it for good. No, God's hand and his fingerprints were all over the life of Joseph. Same is true of Jesus. In Acts chapter 2, Peter, in, his, in the first sermon at Pentecost, he's talking about this man, Jesus, in Nazareth, from Nazareth, the, the man that was approved, attested from God. This man that you put to death. You meant it for evil. But God planned it before the foundation of the world, according to the foreknowledge of God. God sent Jesus to earth so that Jesus would die on the cross. That was God's plan from the beginning. That doesn't take them off the hook. 
but it means that God had a bigger purpose in all of it. And that's where I think we can have hope. That no matter what you're going through, God has a purpose. The reality is it's, it's easier when you're going through good times. We've got this great blessing. We, we were given this gift or this opportunity or, or, or I found someone and we have, I have a child and, and a new job and, and new excitement and, and all these wonderful things. And we praise God. It's easy to do that. But what about when he says no? What do we do there? Does he still have a purpose? Can we still see that? The good news is yes. We've, we've seen it multiple times in this, in, in, in this book that we've been studying, but even throughout Scripture. Remember back in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, where Paul was talking to this church, talking about how he, was, he went to Asia before he came to visit them. And he went to Asia because he thought that God had provided him an open door, that it was going to be incredible opportunities for ministry that he would go and preach the gospel and 5,000 people would be baptized and the church would grow and God would be glorified. And he, that's what he was expecting. He says, brethren, verse eight, it did not go as we thought. Our plan did not go according to plan. In fact, it was so bad, we began to despair of life. It was suicidal. It was that bad, full of angst, angst and anxiety and depression and overwhelm. And he says, I wanted to die. I just wanted out. Now, who sent him to Asia? God did. And the purpose that God sent him to Asia wasn't to change Asia. But God wanted to do a work in Paul. And he, he says it himself, verse 9, but these things happened. The, the struggle, the persecution, the abuse, the angst, all this happened that I would learn to not trust in myself but in the God who raised the dead. There was a training that God needed to do in Paul. Again, he's no, this is 14 years after that revelation that he had in the third heaven, in paradise. He's not new to the faith, and yet he was still needing to learn and grow more. And it came through hardship. Something inside you know that that's true for everyone. Think about, think about creation. Think about nature and, and how, how, how things happen there. But, you know, diamonds are formed under great pressure. We've got wildfires going across Canada in, in record numbers, I'm told. And yet, what do we also know about wildfires? They're great agents for regrowth. That you have all this dead um, timber that is now the forest is dying. And so a fire needs to come through and clear away all the dead brush. And for some trees, it needs that intense heat for the, the cones to open up to release the seeds. And so you sacrifice a few trees so that you get hundreds of new trees. That, that growth comes out of the fire. <coughs> Or we see it in, in the, the birth of a child, the labor that a woman goes through. Even if it's a C-section, it's painful, it's difficult, because the recovery afterwards is. But out of all that pain comes new life. Or heavy storms. They come and they, they water the farmer's field so we can have 
crops or even the droughts. Do you know that in, in places like California or any kind of vineyard where they're making uh, grapes for, for wine, what they often do is they prevent watering from happening at the end, right before they, they gather up all the grapes. They cause a mini drought because what happens now is all the sugar in the roots go up into the grapes and it makes for a sweeter grape caused by a drought. Or the pruning that the vine dresser does, cutting away healthy green foliage or branches that produce some fruit previously in order that there would be much more fruit later. It's these difficulties, these trials. So Paul talks about in, in, in 2 Corinthians 4, right? We have this treasure in earthen vessels. The treasure is Jesus, it's, but it's in me, this earthen vessel. And the danger is that I might be kind of blocking it up. This earthen vessel is a clay jar. And if you put a light in the middle of the clay jar, it will prevent the light from shining. And so you got to poke some holes in the jar so more light can come out. But the more you damage the jar, the more useful it is. The more pressure it's under, the more life comes out. So he says that. He says, I, we're constantly experiencing grace, or death, sorry, so that you might experience life. That, those trials squeeze the life of Jesus out of Paul. So James in chapter 1, verses 2 and 4, he says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. It's not a natural response. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. This trial, the, the pressure you're under, it's like, it's like going to the gym and lifting weights. And just as exercising, lifting weights strengthens you and makes your muscles stronger, it's these trials that cause our faith to grow or to reveal the lack of faith, to reveal what is it we're trusting in. Let me share this illustration with you. I'm sitting here and I'm sort of leaning on this music stand. Now, these music stands aren't very good because they're so weak. Um, Imagine I'm leaning against a chair or something or a wall. And, and I ask you now, is the wall holding me up or am I holding myself up? Don't really know until you do what? Remove the wall or the chair or whatever it is I'm leaning up against. And if I fall down, what does it tell you? I was leaning up against the wall. But if I remain standing, it shows you that I'm not. Well, we all say, I'm trusting Jesus. And I'm not trusting the flesh. I'm not trusting in my own abilities. No, I'm trusting Jesus. All right, let's put it to the test. Let's remove what you may actually have been trusting in instead. And maybe it was a reputation. Maybe it was a job, a bank account, a relationship, something else. And that's suddenly taken away. And that testing comes about for your benefit so you could discover where you might need to grow. And that happens. And it produces, he says, this endurance. Paul said the same thing in Romans chapter 5, verses 3 and 5, right? After we glory in our salvation, we glory in peace with God, we glory in being justified and having access to God, he says we also glory in our tribulations. 
because our tribulations produces, brings about perseverance, the ability to stand up under the trial. That perseverance produces proven character. And that proven character produces hope. And that's a hope that does not disappoint because the love of God is poured out inside of us. But without the trial, without the pressure, none of that happens. 2 Peter 4, 1 and 2 says it this way, Therefore, since Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lusts of men, but the will of God. Anyone want to be done with sin? Right? Sin is essentially disobedience. Sin is trusting in yourself. That's what sin is. Right? Whatever is not a faith is sin. Anyone want to be done with trusting in themselves? Guess what it will take? Suffering. And so your heavenly father will bless you with suffering. That's true. I remember when my, when my kids were babies. In fact, when Hannah was just born, she was a baby. And I remember asking all my friends, like, how do I raise this child under grace? What does that mean? What does that look like? And, and every answer I got was unsatisfactory. So I asked my friend Carl, and he says, pray this prayer if you dare, dare pray it. And I knew right away, uh-oh. He says, pray that, you, that God would bring enough suffering and sorrow in their life that they would learn to trust him as their source of life rather than in the world or in themselves. And as soon as I heard him, I knew it was true. And that's been my prayer, is that my kids, through their trials, through their difficulties, I'm not going to rescue them from them, but that through them, they would find this functional source of life in Jesus. That's not fun. Hebrews 12, 11 says that, right? After all this pain that a father would, would put his son through in order that he would grow and mature out of love, Verse 11, it says that all suffering, all tribulations, all trials isn't joyful and sorrowful. It's miserable. Yet to those who've been trained by it. See, that's the purpose that God has in everything you and I go through. It's a training. It's a teaching. It's a growing. It's a maturing. It's a strengthening. And that's why we have hope. Because no matter how bleak, no matter how miserable, no matter how horrible it is that you're going through, your father who loves you, who's in complete control and is faithful to you and will never turn his back on you, he has a purpose. He's working it out. And maybe you'll never know it. Maybe you'll never see it. But will you trust him, he says. Let me close with one more story. It's one of the most powerful stories in the Old Testament. It's Daniel chapter 3. It's the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Remember that from Sunday school? That they, they had a, a big golden um, idol that they were to bow down and worship to. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Daniel's three friends, three Hebrew friends, they all said, no, we won't do it. But King Nebuchadnezzar liked them. And so he's like giving them more chances. He says, okay, guys, another chance. Because if you keep saying no, we got to throw you in the fire. And they said, doesn't matter how many chances you give us, we'll never bow down to this idol because that's not our God. We have one God, and it's not you, and it's not this, this golden idol. It's God himself, Yahweh. We will not worship anyone but Yahweh. 
Isn't that incredible faith? And they say, we know our God can rescue us. Wow. Amazing. That's not even half of it. Because they go on in, in verse 18 and they say, even if, even if he doesn't rescue us, we still won't bow down. They knew that God is God, and that's all that matters. And they were willing to put all their trust in him. And it wasn't even just to save themselves. They were going to worship and trust God because he's God. And that's the beautiful lesson for us. And what, what we see in the story is, is they're thrown into this fire, these three men, and when they looked in the furnace, what did they see? Four. There's another in the fire. Jesus himself joins them in the fire. And that's our hope. No matter how dark, no matter how disappointing, no matter how difficult, no matter how miserable, what it is you're going through, we have this beautiful truth that the grace of God is with you, that Jesus is with you, and he will empower you and strengthen you each step of the way, even in your weakness. And all he's asking of us is to trust him, even when we didn't get the answer we wanted. Let's pray. Father, this is where the rubber hits the road. Because like I said, it's easy to praise you and worship you and trust you when everything's going good. But what happens when it's all falling apart? What happens when our prayers just don't seem to make any difference? When the relationship's not improving, when the struggle with sin isn't getting better, when the, the, the wayward child or friend isn't coming back to you, when the healing's not coming. And I pray, Father, that we would be able to trust you that you have a purpose. Even and especially in the times that we don't see it, we don't understand it. That we would be like our older brother, Jesus. That when you said no to him, he kept entrusting himself to you, the one who judges righteously. Trusting that your will is the best place to be. In your name we pray, amen. I want to end with a C.S. Lewis quote for Ian. I wanted to put it at the end so we can think about it. But C.S. Lewis, he, he says something to the effect of, we kind of all know that God's going to use whatever I'm going through for my good. I, I've, I recognize that, but that's not my issue. My issue is I'm worried about how much pain it's going to cost me. And that's, that's true. And it's hard. And C.S. Lewis is someone who knew pain. But I'm telling you, it's worth it. 100%. Have a great Sunday, guys. You've been listening to the New Life Fellowship Podcast. Thanks for joining us. For more great content, please be sure to check out our website, newlifekw.ca, and sign up for our mailing list. Subscribers will receive our The Life in the Apartment ebook that is sure to encourage and bless. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and subscribe to our YouTube channel to watch the latest services and additional video content. New Life Fellowship is a registered charity that is supported by the giving of partners and friends. All donations will be received. 
If you would like to donate, donate at newlifekw.ca. Your giving is highly valued and appreciated. You are loved. Take care.